0: Good morning. Um, I know a lot of you all, but if you don't know me, my name is Luke Raikstra. Um I'm an assistant pastor at Taste Creek Presbyterian Church, which is really close to this church in so many different ways. And me and my wife actually spent the greater portion of our 20s here and was greatly formed by you all in so many ways. So it's, it's so good to be back here. Now, I was so excited this week to get to preach here because it's not a holiday. And usually I only get called on holidays because I'm not a head pastor, I'm an assistant pastor. So I get the labor days, I get the memorial days, um, so the head pastor can take a long weekend. So I was so excited this Sunday to get to preach here, no holiday, and then yesterday was the biggest day of the year for Kentucky basketball and the biggest day of the year for the Bengals, my two favorite teams. And so as I was preparing for this sermon yesterday, I was an emotional mess which is actually fitting for our passage uh, because our passage is is very emotional. We'll be in Luke 7, 36 through 50, uh, if you have your Bible or it should be on the screen. And just to give you some context, because you all have been jumping around, um, after Advent, you all have been in a series on encountering Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is one of my favorite books of the Bible, Uh, hopefully not because my name is Luke and I have narcissistic tendencies. Um, But really because Luke, in a unique way, shows us the motivation of Jesus. Every gospel is different. Every gospel gives us the author's unique perspective on this person, Jesus. And Luke shows us what motivates Jesus. Luke has a unique way of showing us that Jesus cares about the outcast, the least of these, the poor, the outsider. And we're going to see this in this passage today in Luke 7, 36 through 50. And what you need to know, for just for some context, this comes right after Jesus has been accused by the Pharisees of being a friend of sinners because He decides to eat with them. And Luke, instead of defending Jesus against that claim, actually proves that that claim is really true in one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. Jesus in this story is truly a friend of sinners because He eats and drinks with them. So let's look at that now. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. And we pray that you'd be faithful to it, as you always are. That you'd open our eyes again to see wonderful things in your word this morning. That you open our hearts, like Justin just sang from the Psalms, to realize that your steadfast love really is better than life. It is what we need this morning, Lord. And so I pray by your spirit you would make it come true in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this in life, but a good meal can practically fix anything. It can change a mood. It can change how a relationship's going. It can comfort the sick. It can even mend a broken heart. And as we're going to find out this morning, a meal can even give grace to a sinner. Don't underestimate the power of any meal. That's why Jesus came eating and drinking. I have a friend at Tate's Creek Presbyterian, some of you might know him, his name is Mark Garrison. And if you know anything about the Garrison family, you know that they've just spent the last year and a half in Africa. He works for Gray Construction, doing engineering, and he took his family to Zambia, Africa to help with a new hospital construction project. And you can imagine the difficulties that might come from doing something like that. Life in Africa is a lot different than life here especially when you're trying to do a work project. You have language barriers, you have cultural barriers, you have differences in perspective, difference in schedules, difference in work practices. And Mark would say that the first couple of weeks in Africa were an absolute mess for so many different reasons. Until one thing started to change it all for him. A few weeks into the project, things were not going well, so Mark decided that during the lunch break, he was gonna bring in a local cook to start cooking meals for the people working there. They had been packing their own lunches, they had been going home for lunches, but he wanted to bring in a local cook to prepare a lunch each day so they could eat together. And here's what Mark said about that meal. The meal we provide each day didn't just fill up empty stomachs, it provided the space that we desperately needed to come together. We begin to connect with each other, trust each other, and every day around that meal we learned how to love each other and this meal in our passage this morning is meant for the exact same thing in this in this story luke paints a picture in such a way that it gets into your heart it expands it to see just how much jesus loves us and it expands it to see how much we're actually capable of love to put it simply this story shows us what we most need. That is love. So three questions about love from this encounter with Jesus. And I'll go through these one at a time. But three questions. What closes your heart against love? What will clean up your heart for love? And what will change your heart to love? Let's start with what closes your heart against love. And Luke tells us through Simon, doesn't he? You see it in verse 36. One of the Pharisees, which we later find out is Simon, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. So what we know about Simon in this first verse is that he's a Pharisee, and he's invited Jesus over. Luke doesn't tell us why he invited Jesus over. It could have been that he's interested in Jesus. He's intrigued by him. It could be he's trying to earn some merit with this new good teacher that has this great reputation. Or it could be, and this is most likely the reason, he wants to test Jesus. He's heard all these things about Jesus and he wants to see if he's the real deal. And a couple of things you need to know about the context, about the history, so we can understand what's about to happen in this story. Simon has not invited Jesus over into a private dinner like we would in his house. This meal is more like a dinner party, a social gathering. It's very public, doors would be left open. People would come from the city to hear what is going on here, what they're talking about, what they're interested in. The meal would be brought out around a big table. Invited guests would be reclining on couches around that table with one elbow leaned down, the other eating, and their feet would be away from the table behind them, which is why the woman weeps and washes his feet from behind. We say don't put your feet on the table they would say don't put your feet near the table because during that time you walked everywhere you went and so they they typically ate by reclining with their feet away from the table so that's the scene that's the context and everything's going according to plan just like Simon wanted it until verse 37 and behold and that's Luke's word for saying you need to pay attention to what's about to happen here and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which is like a perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This woman busts in and kind of ruins the scene, doesn't she? She has most likely met Jesus before. Or she's heard his teaching. And although she's a sinner... She has learned the most beautiful truth in all the world that Jesus is a friend of sinners and he wants to eat with them. And Luke writes this in such an expressive way that you can imagine what's going on if you try hard enough. You can imagine it right now. As she comes in, she's probably nervous, she's probably shaking. She is a sinner, and not just a sinner, but a sinner of a certain kind, a woman of the city, or what we might say, a woman of the streets. Likely a prostitute. And she just busted into the house of a religious leader where they're discussing all these important things with all these important people. And you can imagine the shame that comes over her. What in the world am I doing here? You can imagine the guilt that she might be feeling. I don't belong here. What will they think? What might they say? But stronger than the hate she might receive from them is the love that she has for this Jesus so she busts in with the most precious thing she owns this alabaster flask of perfume and from the language that Luke uses that we can't even get into the English because of how expressive it is she is overcome with emotion she falls apart when she sees Jesus she starts weeping which in the original language means she's raining down tears. She wipes him up by putting down her hair, which was forbidden during that time, unless you're with your husband. And she kisses without ceasing, keeps on kissing his feet in worship. And as a final sign that he's worthy of all her worship, she anoints her, he, she anoints him. And as Jesus is taken in by all this love that she has, our host, Simon, is disgusted by it. Now, to be fair to him, this would be an extremely awkward situation. I think we can admit that. If you were at a dinner party and someone walked in and did this, I don't think any of us would just be fine with it. We would have some questions. We would have some concerns about what's going on. But Simon here indicates that he's more than awkward. In fact, the only thing that matches her outrageous response to Jesus is his outrageous rudeness. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of man this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And with this statement, we learn what closes off our heart to love we learn what's the biggest barrier in our life to loving others. Simon is self-righteous. Jesus' confrontation throughout the Gospels is almost always with the religious leaders. It's not with the sinners. The sinners are drawn to Him. But the Pharisees are repulsed by Him. Why is that? There's self-righteousness. So what is that? If self-righteousness is the barrier to our love, what is self-righteousness we'll look back at what he says you can hear it in his language not only did he call her a sinner but he alluded to what sort of woman this is and this is the way self-righteousness always works when i went to seminary i went to seminary in orlando and so me and a bunch of guys from Lexington would travel down there ever so often and take classes And in our last two years going down there, we met a a group of elderly ladies at this church that were widowed um, later on in life. They were so kind to us, and they took us in. We could stay with them free of charge. They would feed us, be friends with us, help us in so many different ways. And as we were staying with them, we honestly learned more from them than we did from our classes. But one of them had been a pastor's wife. Her husband had gone to be with the Lord 10 years earlier. And we had a lot of questions for her as a pastor's wife. What had been their biggest struggle in marriage? What had she learned? What did we as as future pastors need to look out for? And she said, our first 30 years of marriage were really hard, which took us back. First 30 years. I've heard of first year of marriage being hard, first 30 years of marriage was really hard for them. And so we naturally asked, what happened? Uh, we don't. No one wants their first thirty years of marriage to be really hard. And she said, and I'll never forget this. We didn't know at the time, but looking back, in all of our differences and all of our conflicts, we didn't just think we were right. We thought we were better than the other. And when you think you're better than the other, the other is always beneath you. You see, Simon doesn't just think he's right for following God's law. He thinks he's better. To him, he would never do the things that she has done. He would never be the person that she is. And we find out later in the story that he not only does this to her, but he does this to Jesus. Look at verse 44. Jesus turns to Simon and says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss but from the time I came in she has not ceased to kiss my feet you did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment the baseline common courtesy in those days were those three things when you had someone in your house you welcomed them with a kiss you gave them a basin to wash off their dirty feet and you anointed their head with oil as a sign of welcome that was the basic that was the bare minimum act of hospitality during that time And Simon, as the host, does none of it. Which implies that he thinks Jesus must be beneath him in some way. That Jesus must not be worthy of the most common courtesy that's due to a person. And as we read through this story, hopefully you've realized that self-righteousness just might be the most dangerous thing in the world. Because the self-righteous cannot love, not truly. You can't love someone that you think you're better than. You just can't. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at NYU, he's a social psychologist, and he wrote a really important book about 10 years ago, and he makes this point in that book. The book is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. In that book, he tries to answer the question, why in America are we so divided on so many different things? And this was 10 years ago. Why are we in America so divided on everything from race to religion to gender to now in this pandemic? what was his conclusion from this book from this research the same as jesus we are a self-righteous nation we don't just think we're right in our differences we think we are better we think we're better because of our race we think we're better because of our gender we think we're better because of our religion or our politics the the pandemic has exposed so much of this because we don't just think we're right in our views We think we're better than the other based on our views. And when you think you're better than the other person, you cannot love them. You will not connect with them. You will not see your need for them. And that's the problem. Self-righteousness has closed off Simon's heart. He has no love for this woman, and he has no need for the love of Jesus. So if self-righteousness closes our hearts against love, what will open them back up? Our hearts desperately need to be opened back up. So let's look at that next. What clears our hearts for love? And to answer that question, we must now turn from Simon to the other main character in the story, the sinful woman who curiously is never named. What did she understand that Simon didn't understand? What did she understand that Simon didn't understand? Jesus helps us see the difference through a parable. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors; one owed five hundred denarii, the other fifty. Just read that as five hundred days' pay versus fifty days' pay. That's what a denarii was; it was pretty much a day's wages. So you can think one person owed about two years of debt, one; the other person owed about two months of debt. Verse forty-two. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the largest debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. This is the brilliance of Jesus' parables. Simon's been caught. That's probably why he answers so reluctantly. Did you pick up on that? I suppose. I suppose the one that's larger in debt. You suppose, Simon, really? and then jesus after flipping the script on him shows him the point in verse 47 therefore i tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little what has caused her to love like this what why is her heart so open while simon's is so closed she's been forgiven that's the difference the first time I remember hearing this story, and I might have heard it before this, but the first time I remember it, I was in a Sunday school class in my hometown, in middle school, and I don't remember who the person that taught us that day, but I'll never forget the, what they said the point of the story was. He asked us to read the story out loud, and he, he asked us what, the, what we thought about the story, and we all gave the Sunday school answer that middle school others uh, say uh, it's about Jesus. He let us go on for a while, And then he said this, which is really curious. He said, I think this is my least favorite story in the Bible. Which is crazy because this is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. And then he explained why. He says, every time I read this story, it feels like Jesus is punishing me for being a good person all my life. Since I have less to be forgiven for, I will always love him less than other people. I was in middle school, and I didn't know much about the Bible, I don't think. But even at the time, I was like, I don't think that's it. (laughs) I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. And it's not. Jesus isn't telling Simon you need to be a bigger sinner. He's telling Simon that you need to realize how big your sins actually are. His self-righteousness is actually more dangerous than her sexual sin. Because in her sin, she sees her need. And Simon Simon's he doesn't. Although he is hourly good, his heart is hard. And we now understand the, the connection that Jesus makes between forgiveness and love. Simon has no sense of love because he has no sense of forgiveness. And he has no sense of forgiveness because he has no sense of need. He doesn't understand that he too has a debt that he cannot pay. Jesus uses the word debtors here because that is the biblical language for sinners. And Pharisees at that time didn't think they were perfect. They would never claim that. But they did think that they were separated from others because of their righteous good deeds. And in this parable, Jesus doesn't separate Simon and the woman. He puts them in the same category. They're both debtors. Both people had a debt and both couldn't pay. That's the point. Simon and the woman are not so different. They both desperately need to be forgiven by Jesus, but the problem is only one sees it. She has been forgiven for her sins, and now her heart is freed up to love Him with everything she has. She is free to weep. She is free to wash. She is free to give. This is what forgiveness does to a person. It cleanses our heart. That's why we so desperately need it. So if, if self-righteousness closes our heart and if forgiveness cleans our heart, where does this love and forgiveness come from? In, in, in the Christian life, we can often think in terms of what do I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do. Give me the practicals. But Christianity is, lo- is less about what you need to do and more about who. It's more about the love of our Savior. It's not a question of what, it's a question of who. So let's finish our story and see how Jesus changes our hearts to love. What will change our heart? Look at verse 48. And Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at table with Him begin to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace there's so many good questions that get asked throughout this story but the most crucial one is this who is this who is this man who even forgives sins they're asking themselves like Simon did earlier they're speaking under their breath they're talking to themselves they're thinking these things but instead of asking themselves they need to be asking her (laughs) she's the one that knows she knows exactly who this man is And you remember, she was the only one who anointed him with this perfume. And that was common courtesy at the time. But what you need to know, and more importantly, people throughout the Old Testament were anointed at certain times to signify God's special presence with this person. The leaders of God's people were often anointed, his prophets, his priests, and his kings, as the leaders of God's people. And all throughout the Old Testament, Leading up to our time here in this passage, people were on the lookout for this special Messiah. This special person, this Christ, the Anointed One, who's going to come to set them free from all this sin and suffering. They were looking for the Anointed One. And then Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene telling people that their sins are forgiven. Speaking as if He is God. Who is this that even forgives sins? and Luke tells us it's Jesus he's the Christ he's the anointed one he's the one your heart's been looking for he is our true prophet priest and king and if you want a changed heart in this life you need to understand those three and Luke tells us exactly that Luke tells us that Jesus is our prophet that knows us better than we know ourselves did you notice Simon's question Simon questions if this man is truly a prophet, he would know who this woman was and he would not allow her to touch him. But not only does Jesus know this woman, Simon finds out that Jesus knows him too. He sees Simon all the way through and he does the same thing with you and me. Jesus knows us better than anyone, which is why it's really foolish for us to pretend with him we don't have to pretend with Jesus because he's our prophet he knows us do you remember the testimony of the woman at the well in John 4 he comes up to her he asks her where her husband is she says I have no husband he said I I know you have no husband you've had five and the one you're with now is not your husband he sees her all the way through she doesn't have to pretend with him And at the end, she went and told everyone, come see about this man who told me all that I ever did. Why is that good news? Why is it good news to meet a man that told you all that you ever did? Because he's not just our great prophet that knows us. Jesus is also our great priest that forgives us. He doesn't just see our sin. He doesn't just know your heart. He wants to take that from you. Simon questions why Jesus would let this woman touch him. Why does Simon do that? It's because being the type of sinner she was didn't just make her a bad person, it made her unclean. She's to be separated away from other people. And for her to touch anyone would then make them unclean. Maybe some of you have felt that. You feel unclean, either from the things that you've done or things that have been done to you. This, this feeling of, I can't get clean no matter what I do. But Jesus isn't like the Pharisees. He's not like anyone. He's God. When sinners touch Jesus, they don't make Him unclean. He makes them clean. That's the difference in Jesus and everyone else. He knows our sin as a prophet, and He forgives our sin as a priest. She is no longer separated from God. She has instant access to Him and she's taken full advantage of it. She's right there where she needs to be at the feet of Jesus. She has access to Him and no matter what you've done, so do you. And lastly, He's also the great King. Notice in verse 50, He tells her, Your faith has saved you. You have trusted in Me and has saved your life. Now go in Peace. That is his final saying to her. And that's a favorite saying of Jesus. Go in peace. And the word peace here doesn't mean basic comfort or an absence of conflict. It means shalom. The Bible's richest expression for rightness in this world. Harmony, flourishing. Every time we see something in this world and we say that's not how it should be, shalom is the opposite of that. Shalom is exactly how the world was meant to be as God intended for it. And it was the job of the king to lead his people into that shalom, into that peace. And the beauty of this story is we just got to watch Jesus do that with somebody. We just got to watch Jesus lead this sinner into his peace. She is right with God, her creator, and she is starting to make things right in the world. Did you notice that? She did all the things that Simon was supposed to do. She undid all his rudeness. So to answer the original question, who is this that even forgives sins? His name is Jesus. And He's the best. He's done everything for us. Which makes sense of why she wants to do everything for Him. Like her, we are told that God so loved us that He gave Not just His most prized possession, but His only begotten Son. And like her, this Son Jesus poured everything out for us. He washed our feet, He took our sins, He gave His life, and He rose from the grave, and He's now leading us into His eternal peace forever. So what are you supposed to do with all that? I don't think she knew what she was supposed to do. I really don't. I just think she woke up, and she wanted to love like she'd been loved. And that's my final application from this story, because that's all you need to do, too. I've talked to a lot of people over the last two years of this pandemic, and all the chaos and craziness, the times we lived in, Justin alluded to it in his announcements. Everyone's stressed, everyone's busy, everyone's overwhelmed. There's so many things to do, so many things to be, so many things to live up to. In the midst of all that craziness and all that stress and all that overwhelming, Jesus is looking at you this morning and and saying, do you see this woman? Because that's what you need to be doing. Do you see her? Don't overcomplicate this life. Through her, we're reminded what's most important. Loved as you've been loved in the ways that you know how. That's it. I've, I've always loved the story of a guy named Joe Ehrman. He's a high school football coach in Maryland. And he's had a lot of success in the football field, but even more off of it. And people have been really shocked because of his unconventional methods. He does some really strange things. And it's because he cares less about football and more about love. And so he was... There's a book about him called Seasons of Life, and they found out through this investigative journalism with him that at the start of every practice, he asked his players two things. He starts off the practice, and he says, what is our job today as coaches? And the players respond, to love us. And then he says, what is your job today as players? And the players say, to love each other. And when asked about why in the world do you do this, He says, more than anything, I want these boys to know what matters most in this life. That we are made to love and to be loved. And I pray that from this story, you know that too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I I don't know what kind of God it is that that only asks us to love. That is so amazing. And I pray that you'd move our hearts to do that right now. That you cleanse us of our sins that you'd help us know we have access to you and that we'd come to this table knowing that your love really is better than life it's in jesus name we pray amen